there, and welcome to episode 42 of Neil Before Odd. I am Audrey Kearns, and I am your host. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my podcast in whatever you may be doing right now. I don't know, you could be walking your dog. I listen to podcasts a lot when I walk my dog, or clean the house, washing dishes, vacuuming. Um, I've also listened to podcasts when I'm trying to avoid a conversation with my Uber driver. I've done that. I listen to them at the gym. So maybe you're at the gym right now. So if you are, go that extra five minutes. You can do it. But however, and wherever you're listening, thank you. I appreciate it. And now I'll talk a little bit about this episode I have for you right now. In this episode, I've talked to Jeff Henderson. Jeff is an incredibly talented guy. And when I found out that his short film, The Sable Corsair, won the 2016 Star Wars fan film Audience Award, I had to get him over here to chat about it. And we do. And it is absolutely fascinating. Now, one of my favorite things about this episode with Jeff is that we also talk about his creative journey to become who he is today. And let me tell you, it's very engrossing. And it started quite early in his life, and I have a feeling that you'll be as memorized with the conversation as I was. And you'll also hear in this episode that Jeff, in addition to being a filmmaker, is a writer, he's a musician. In fact, he has an EP that was just released. He's an artist with a very impressive storyboard career. Uh, You're going to hear some great stories about that, which may or may not have a little cameo from Bruce Campbell. A little story about that. And Jeff has also a very talented actor, which you can see for yourself by watching A Sable Corsair. In fact, after listening, I suggest you go to geekgirlauthority.com and put in Neil Before Odd, Jeff Henderson in the search bar, and you'll find a link to a Star Wars short film, a link to Jeff's website where you can enjoy all of his art, and a link to his EP from his band, The Dark Holidays, called Good Morning California. All right. I'll leave it at that. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. I know you'll love it as much as I love doing the interview. Enjoy episode 42 of Neil Before Odd with my guest, Jeff Henderson. Internet, heed this call. Open your minds and ears and prepare yourselves to Neil Before Odd. Hey there, and welcome to episode 42 of Neil Before Odd. I'm Audrey Kearns, your host, and this is a podcast where I interview geek patriots, and I may have the biggest geek patriot yet on my show sitting before me. Yeah, Jeff Henderson. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Of course. Thanks for having me. I think uh, my listeners are going to agree with me by the end of this episode that you may be, after what you've done this past year, my goodness, you're an artist, musician, actor, filmmaker, and most recently... And amazingly, you wrote, directed, and starred in The Sable Horsehair, a Star Wars fan film, which won the Audience Award at Europe's Star Wars Celebration, and that is a big deal. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really, um, it was really something. I've been taken aback at the amount of attention and and the amount of momentum that it took on is crazy. Um, Because it started really small, and it just has turned into this whole thing. Yeah, well, you couldn't have done it at a better time, too, with, with what's going on in the Star Wars Universe, and I have a lot of questions to ask about that, but um, I'm going to start this interview like I start all my interviews by asking you, what is your nerd origin story, Jeff? Wow. I actually have a legitimately real origin story. Tell it. Um, (laughs) I've always been 
a huge media nerd. So much so that the very first words, and Jen's heard my mom say this, the very first words I uttered were Walter Cronkite. Oh, that's fantastic. And I used to sit transfixed in front of the TV and they'd try to pull me away and I'd watch whatever was on, whether it was news or movies, just hours and yeah, hours and hours. Yeah, So it was all, it was all kinds of media that oh, was coming in at and you. I just yeah. was riveted by and um And when I was seven, I had a terrible, terrible accident that actually uh-huh. killed me. Like I was flatlined and oh, the whole thing. And I was laid up for a long time. I was in uh-huh. a coma. Um, it pretty much destroyed the entire left side of my head. Um, to this oh. day, I'll let you feel. Yeah, if you're not I, can't, I have a I, I can't wait plate to touch your head. and like a big dent in it and stuff. Do you? I'm gonna sidetrack here. Do you have to do a different kind of security screening at the airport? No, okay. but I do have um, some weird residual stuff even to this day. I yeah, go I've had years brain injuries, cognitive therapy, and all. Kind yeah, of, and when it happened, they told my mom that the best she could hope for, if I survived the night, was that I would be severely brain damaged and disfigured wow. because it was so the impact was so bad it actually shifted my eye line like it shifted all this was mashed in wow. and um so i mean i guess one of those two you could argue how the, the validity of but um <laughs> but the the thing was after i got out of the the coma and i had to go through all this rehab how long were you in the coma oh uh, five or six days wow um because i had and the first surgery i had because my brain was exposed, and I don't mean to gross out your listeners, but no. um, they had the whole, I couldn't have any anesthetic because they can't put you under, under. So I had to have the first surgery with nothing. They held me down. I had, my mom brought my Winnie the Pooh bear and I had its ear in my mouth. I would and, assume, and, and maybe your, your mom's a stronger woman than I, I would assume that she had to leave the room or did she stay in and hold you I down? I think she stayed. Oh, I because, can't imagine having to get the, the child. But here's the weird thing is, for all you non-medical patients out there, um, your brain actually doesn't have any nerve endings. So I remember it was a really bizarre thing because I was being held very rigidly uh-huh. and you, I f- would feel this pressure and then I'd hear this tink in the little metal thing next to my ear and it was them pulling the shards of skull out. <sighs> that was just to get me through the night before wow. they could do anything else. Um, so anyway, so it was that was a real weird episode and that was defining for a long time. Of so course. when I was convalescing, I was in bed for a long time. I couldn't really do anything. So my mom and my grandmother, God bless them, brought me a huge stack of comics, uh-huh. a guitar, and put a TV in front of the bed. And that's everything you're good at right there. Well, I exactly. mean, you're a comic book nerd, you're a musician, yeah. and you're a star. Oh. And then I had um, a bunch of, of na- neighborhood buddies who would come yeah. over, and we they'd bring games and action figures, and we'd play and stuff. And then we'd spend um, weekends watching... Like that's how I was introduced to Japanese pop culture because we'd watch Marine Boy and Ultraman oh. on the UHF channel. And then we'd watch all the Chinese Kung Fu movies like the Seven Deadly Venoms and all that kind of stuff, all the Sonny Chiba stuff, all the Street Fighter stuff, all that. And then we would watch, um, you know, like the, uh, all the fights, whether it was Ali or whoever was boxing, we were huge boxing fans. So it was, an, and then, you know, Star Trek reruns and Battlestar Galactica, just literally whatever I could get in. And that was really defining because it was months of that. Yeah. And then as I got better, where I was up and around again and functioning, um, I went to New York. My parents were split up. My dad was a, a successful director in New York. He did commercials and stuff. And um, that was the other part of it because he took me to see Star Wars for the first time, which was absolutely defining. I mean, yes. I... I've written whole essays on the impact it had. And I don't think I'm alone. I think that's why it's resonated generationally. There's millions of people that had this same epiphany. But 
um, being and coming from where I was, you know, I grew up in a, a bad part of Baltimore and we had a hard time growing up and, you know, no, no sob story, just it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But I, I identified so closely with that aspirational thing with being stuck somewhere and wanting to have adventure and wanting right. to be better and greater than you are. And it still resonates with me. I still have that thing. I get choked up sometimes just thinking about it. Like when I hear that music swell, I think about, oh my God, it just. Well, how many, I mean, I know that you guys, um, much like, um, when I say you guys, it's because uh, your wonderful girlfriend is sitting right next to you, Jenna Bush, who, okay. who, who is a friend of mine as well. Um, Went to see Star Wars right at the beginning. Uh, Force Awakens is what I'm talking about. And how yeah. many people did you see start to cry? Oh, I, my goodness. So it many. was crazy. The last person I expected to cry actually was my husband. I know he was very excited, but he's not. And then I, I just, I did a double take of him because I went to hold his hand when the squirrel started <laughs> just to go, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And and I did run up one row and give everybody a high five. You know, all yeah. that kind of stuff was going on in the theater. But when it started, I grabbed his hand and I went to look at him to smile. I did not expect to see the tears running down his face, but they were. Jen, Jen got all misty. And I yeah. looked at her. I'm like, are you crying? She's like, no. <laughs> no, I just... I got something in my eye. I'm like, yeah, tears. <laughs> now you, so you grew up in Baltimore, and I know mm-hmm. I'm I'm saying it as someone that doesn't live in Baltimore. My husband's family is, um, his mom and family are from Baltimore, and pronounce it exactly like you just did. Baltimore, hon. Yep. Oh uh, yeah. Do, were you um, raised there throughout high school, all the way to high school? Well, I am um, because my parents were apart, so I'd spent a lot of time in New York and then Detroit. Because that my dad went back and forth, right? Because um, he did a lot of stuff for Chrysler and Dodge, and uh-huh. and so I would. How's that for the triple crown of hard ass <laughs> East Coast upbringing? I, I know, right? Between Detroit, Baltimore, New York, <laughs> um, but it was mostly Baltimore, and I I always have a, an affinity for Baltimore. Right. I mean, it was, um, it's a really interesting place, but, but the people are wonderful, and and I learned a. I do you mean, miss it? Do you miss going back home, or do um, you go back home? I when do you can? sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's certain. I, I think anyone that grows up somewhere, you're so eager to get away, mm-hmm. and then you get nostalgic, and then you go back, and after like a day or two, you're like, oh, I remember, I remember. why I left. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, yeah. um, I I, there, I love Baltimore. I yeah. love the city. I love the people. I love the Ravens. I love the harbor. And um, and like I said, I learned a lot of profoundly important things there. When you were growing up, because you, you that story about your accident, um, about your brain injuries, is, is fascinating. And you said you got the comics, you got the guitar, and everything. So after you were better, um, what drew you? Because you're an amazing artist as well. What were you doing everything at once, or did you like focus on? I'm going to learn how to play this guitar. Or well, part of what the weird thing, and and I'll preface this is I've never, I've never had any definitive answer to to this but when i i had to go to therapy afterwards for so long because they really did think i was either going to die or be just totally messed up and was so you were under supervision for quite some time yeah then. and yeah. and so as it was and late as i got older and i went through puberty um because i had to go back for testing for years and years and years um essentially the way it was explained was that because it was the left side of my brain was damaged that like i have all kinds of weird stuff like, I have problems with my balance. I have problems with my equilibrium. I'm dyslexic. I uh-huh. have all kinds of weird idiosyncratic stuff. They said it was similar to someone who loses a sense. Like, if you go blind, your other senses overcompensate. So that because, like, the algorithmic part of my brain was damaged. So that, your right brain? The, the creative side. Wow, that's now, fascinating. Now, I don't, I'm not, yeah, I'm not writing, like, an article yeah. for Amer- <laughs> Scientific American or anything. 
But everything Jeff is saying is a hundred percent true. Right. And cite him when you're but writing the, your but articles. The, but you know, through those years of me and my mom going, and we had to go to Hopkins almost. There was a period we were going every week, and I'd have because they'd have to do, they'd have to be able to quantify advances or diminish, you know, mm-hmm. over a period of time. Right. And I just started having this crazy burst of where I, I was doing all of it at once. Wow. And I'd had some affinity, like I could draw when I was really little mm-hmm. and I always had an affinity for music, but I have no musicians in my family. And, um, and then I started doing dialects and accents and I started drawing and, you know, just all this burst that, right. and it's never stopped. So, um, if you're like, I, I don't, I, I come from a very smart family and a very analytical family because and that's who I am. And that was definitely nurtured in me growing up. You know, I ended up being president of the math club and doing, I think my parents Look were- Look at you, I well know. done. Thank you. So I think when I said, hey, mom, I'm going to be an actor, there was a little <laughs> disappointment. Um, but um, did you find motivation at school then? If your family wasn't, um, if they weren't musicians or artists, even if they enjoyed the stuff, where were you, where was was, your outlet? It's funny. We were just talking about this very thing on the way here. School was, um, school was tough because uh, it's, it's hard to explain. It's like trying to describe blue to a blind man. There's just this thing. Um, I can't, cause I have no objectivity. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I have this thing. It's like this little kid thing where like, I always feel like I'm staring through the window and it's like those first couple of days of spring where you just want to go outside and play and run uh-huh. and be, do your thing. And it's hard for me to, um, I had a hard time in school. Yeah. Um, and not because that's you know, a, by the way, that's a very lovely metaphor. I oh, really, that was really neat my, to explain but, a feeling that was really cool. But my grades were, yeah. my grades were okay, but I just had a really hard time focusing on stuff I didn't care right. about. And frankly, a lot of it I didn't care that much about. Right. Were um, you going home and playing your guitar or oh, I was, music and drawing? No, I and- got a guitar specifically. Okay, this is what we were just talking about. Okay. I had a huge comic book collection that I had amassed from when I was a kid, from me and six. When I hit about 13, 14, um, I really wanted a better guitar. I wanted an electric guitar. I wanted to rock out. Uh-huh. So I sold my comic book collection on my own. Uh-huh. I got this guitar that came with this sweet case that had an amp in the case. Uh-huh. So I used to take it to school every day for like a year or two. And I would cut classes. I'd go on the roof. I'd go to the quad where they'd smoke. I'd do any excuse to go. And I'd just set it up and I'd rock out by uh-huh. myself. And like, so I'd kind of pick <laughs> pick and choose where right. I'd want to go. But Did I you have any problems with your mom or dad about not doing well in school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was like an ongoing thing. Yeah. yeah. And Another interesting part of it was the one well, the one thing I really struggled in was math. And I mean, really bad. Like, mm-hmm. And the thing was, I, I have a really great work ethic. I always have. So I'd try really hard. I got to I'd do everything. And I'd yeah. always fail. And it was years of this. And it got so frustrating. And even to this day, I remember that it's it, it was like a palpable frustration. Where I'd get so pissed off. Right. I, w- I couldn't understand what I was doing wrong or not doing. And it was like the end of my junior year where someone, it finally came to the attention of somebody that I actually had like a learning disability with math because of all the other crap that right. no one had picked up on. And then once they made provisions for that and I was kind of exempted from, I, I got to take kind of, um, uh, what would, what's the, um, like ability appropriate math classes. Right. Um, it, it helped a lot because right. I was so, that was so problematic and it gets weird, man. When you're a kid and like, there's stuff going on that you're not sophisticated enough to understand or you mm-hmm. don't have a name for. It's like a nameless, mm-hmm. faceless thing that you're fighting. Um, 
Frustration's a really difficult, I mean, it's a difficult thing as an adult, but when mm-hmm. you're a kid, it's why babies cry because you don't yeah. have the means to, to verbalize what you're so frustrated about. Yeah, and being able, so when you were able to put a name to it or a, oh, a it, reason why, it, it kind of changes, it helped a lot. changes yeah. how, you, how you think. And, and, and then the last year um, of school, that was a lot easier. And then I left the day, the, the same day I graduated high school, I left to go tour. With, with a, a band? With a band. Awesome. Which was really cool. Right. And who, it, who were, who were you It was uh, with uh, Wilson with? Pickett. What? Yeah. Are you Be- serious? Yeah. Because, um, and I was, a, I mean, I was a kid. I was like 17. And the. Were you playing guitar for him? I was playing guitar and Holy singing backup. Cow. And interestingly, the years before, that same position had been held by Jimi Hendrix. Which, Jeff, that's so amazing. So, who has the same initials as you. See? Which I know go. you figured that out too um, by now, right? But, <laughs> so I worked, I worked part-time in a music store uh-huh. right near my house all through high school. Yeah. And this bass player used to come in named Kevin. And he uh-huh. was, to this day, is the greatest bass player I've ever seen. The guy was phenomenal. And they used to call him Plucky because he was so tall and uh-huh. thin and he had uh-huh. these long, crazy fingers. Which and, I think make the best oh, bass, yeah. and bass he, players. And I was a yeah. huge um, slap bass fan. He'd come yeah. in and just, you know, and I would sit there just transfixed. I'd blow off customers. I'd blow off, and I'd just sit and riveted just watching him do his thing. So over a period of time, we got to be friendly because we were relatively close in age. And and he and when, as I was growing up, um, I kind of came into rock music later on. Like, But I grew up on just a wide variety of stuff. Right. But really, a lot of it was R&B and 70s soul and stack soul and, you know, Motown, that kind of stuff. And um, which I think the fact that I was like a, a white, long haired rock and roll looking kid belied mm-hmm. some of that. So once he knew that I was kind of steeped in a lot of where he was coming from, and then eventually it came out that he played bass for Pickett's touring band. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, my God, I love that guy. And he's like, how do you even know who he is? And so one thing led to another. So in my last year of school, um, they, the way he explained it to me later was, I guess, Van Halen at the time wanted to do a rocked out version of In the Midnight Hour, uh-huh. which is one of his favorite songs or one of his big hits. Yeah. And when they went to get his permission, he's like, well, screw that. I'll. I need, my career needs a shot. I'll get some white, long-haired rock and roll guy to do yeah. it. I'll do it myself. Uh-huh. So they had me come in and audition, and I auditioned at this club in Baltimore, and um, I got the gig, and I left to play with them like the day after. How long were you on tour? Um, On and off for, I don't know, six months, eight yeah. months. And then I left and toured with another band after that. And then I came home and started, you know, putting my own bands together and doing all that stuff. Right. And then I, as I was doing that, I was drawing comics and uh-huh. doing graphic design and like t-shirt design and stuff. Just what was uh, what was the thing that uh, had you leave? What opportunity had you leave Baltimore? Um, Did you go was, from Baltimore? I know you lived in Vegas for a while. Did you go from Baltimore to Las Vegas? We had a kind of a stop in in Phoenix. Yeah, um, we had some friends that lived in Phoenix, and we had a band, and we had done pretty well in Baltimore. We knew we couldn't afford to move to LA, but with uh, our friends' help, we knew we could get as far as Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And um, no offense to anyone listening to from Phoenix, but man, I hated it. <laughs> Me and Phoenix did not get along at yeah. all. It was like living on Tatooine or yeah. Mars or something. It was just, it's, yeah. Jesus. And then, um, you know, when you go, and being from Baltimore, it's a weird thing because, you know, I didn't know nothing of the desert. So you go in, it looks like some Western, like Zane Gray painting, and, and you walk into Ralph's and they have like a gun check in thing. They did? Well, yeah. Like wow. when you walk in, they have a little locker where, you know, the cowboys would pull it and pull their gun belts yeah. off one of the thing. And I was well, like. I'm from the South and I never, I've never yeah, even I didn't seen know, that. I didn't know whether that was like cool or terrifying. Yeah. 
you know, in Baltimore, if someone's got a gun in the grocery <laughs> store, you ain't checking no. anything, but you're, you go you know, out, yeah. leave. Um, and we didn't stay there very long. And then I ended up going to Vegas um, because the drummer, Jack, who has been my, my lifelong best friend, lived there. And uh-huh. when we kind of ended up going there and then um, we ended up have, starting a band there that did really, really well. We had it. We really well we got a deal with mca we had a whole thing we uh-huh. the whole nine yards and came here and recorded an album did a video did the tours the whole thing and it just threw a bunch of unfortunate circumstances that really had nothing to do with us the whole thing kind of went under yeah and which then is, which happens yeah it certainly yeah. does and then i got to a point where i was like i need to do something so um i had been away from drawing for a while and i figured at that point i either had to figure out how to make a living as an artist or be a drug dealer. Uh-huh. And I thought the artist thing would be a little, little happy. I'm little happy about choice. your choice. I'm happy am, about but your for the choice. most part. <laughs> I, re- I, I remember um, we all hung out in, in Vegas a couple of years ago and you said that you used to uh, for extra cash impersonate Elvis, right? Yeah. So uh, did you do that a lot? Uh, well, a lot's a relative term, okay. but I mean, when I needed money, yeah. which was, you know, but but how did you? I mean, go about well, they, doing I mean, that. If you do a good Elvis, there's they, they, endless variety of for you in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, I mean, whether you do it for an agency where you do it at kids' parties or wedding chapels, or, right? Then they have this the shows like you know, there's American. There at the time there was a big one at the uh, at the Stratosphere. You know, every casino has their own version, and then. There's goof bands, you know, like there was Dread Zeppelin with the Zeppelin cover. Yeah, so yeah. We had one called STP, which was Stone Temple Presley, where you do I love it. What grunge songs uh-huh. with Elvis singing them. Oh, how fun! Know. Um, yeah. So you, so you said you were in Vegas and you started drawing again, right? Like a more yeah. Often. Well, I, I, it's funny. Right when the band stuff started to break, was actually I got my first break doing comics. Uh huh. So I. I did the first couple issues of comics while we were doing all this crazy band stuff. And then I, I had to suspend that for a while because we got the deal with MCA. We came down here to record and uh-huh. we were here for probably two years. Doing oh, all that. okay. And then, um, then when the deal went bust and everything kind of went down the toilet, um, I went to pick it back up and I had, um, I had sold a bunch of stuff. So you were in LA at this time. You didn't go back to Vegas. Well, we right? had, no, when everything went bust, we had to go back to Vegas okay. and kind of lick our wounds. Yeah. And the, what had happened is we had signed that deal with MCA and we'd also, it, but it was kind of like piggybacked on this deal with a producer who had his a vanity imprint through right. MCA distrib. So it was like a joint thing. Right. And essentially <laughs> his relationship with MCA deteriorated so badly that by the time our album was slated for release, their relationship had fallen, had just deteriorated to the point where it was all legal back and forth. Right, and we were, your album was we're caught, kind of caught in the middle, in of, the middle of that. Yeah. And, you know, the people from MCA were great and came to us and said, look, we love you, we love the band, and we'd love blah, 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 but we just can't assume this kind of legal liability. Yeah. So we went back. So before you go back, though, I mean, like, how um, did you at that time, because that's a big disappointment. I mean, you spent a long time making that album. How, how, do you, how did you process that disappointment to go back? Or were, are you good at saying, oh, that didn't work out? Uh, you know? Sometimes I Some, am. I think it's a relative. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were all, we were all really bummed out because yeah. um, it's one thing if you, if you have the opportunity to see fail or succeed on your own merits. I have no problem with failing. I have no problem with getting my ass kicked. I have no problem with getting bloody and taking a shot. 
The problem was and has always been, because I'm still really, really tight with the other guys on my band. I mean, they're like my best, best friends. Um, we still talk about this. We just actually all played together just a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. Um, but the thing that I guess sticks with all of us is we we were never given the opportunity to succeed or fail on our own merits. Right. It was all. It right. was about everything but what was important. And um, you know, if the album, if we, if the record had come out and the videos had come out, and we had gotten a tour on it and support it, and no one bought it or everyone thought it sucked. That's cool. That's fine because mm-hmm. at least you know. Yeah. But to have that lingering thing where it was taken out of our hands through no fault of our own is that was problematic. That was tough. Yeah, that's a that's a big pill to swallow. And then. Know? And then we waited out the term because we had however long it was left on the term. We wanted to do the right thing and we didn't want to burn the bridge with the first guy because, you know, in a lot of ways it didn't have anything to do with us. We were kind of collateral damage. Uh So we went back to Vegas and woodshedded and wrote songs and just kind of waited out the term. And then once the term was up, we were approached by a bunch of labels. We went and recorded with this big producer up in Northern California, which was, oh, amazing. So much so that we're in the studio and the people that she had worked with and the caliber of talent she worked with, we were all standing there like laughing like, oh, so this is what it's supposed to be like. Okay. <laughs> oh, interesting. I get it now. And we had this great experience. And then we came home mm-hmm. and um, we had been approached by a really, really big label. And the, to the point where they had gone on our local station in Vegas and a- announced they were signing us. We did this big showcase, the House of Blues. It was mm-hmm. a whole big deal. And, um, and then without getting into the whole thing, the first thing spilled over into this where it essentially nuked our chances of signing oh, with anybody yeah. because um, there was all kinds of stuff involved that we had gotten swallowed up in this legal it, momentum of right. this battle. And like you had said before, so it's the collateral. Yeah, exactly. Damage. So yeah. The, the head of the new label came to us and it was the same thing that we'd heard. You know, we love the band. We love the record. We love you guys personally. We'd love to help, but you know, under ideal circumstances, signing a baby band is difficult enough and mm-hmm. breaking a new band is difficult enough, but we can't assume all this legal liability. Yeah. And, you know, they're like, it's going to take you years to get this resolved. That's a career. So basically, you guys you guys found out at that point that this was going to follow you for yeah, a while. Yeah, there, there, there was just nothing we could do. I mean... That we, really sucks. We just couldn't... There was no getting out from under it. And then at that point, um, the other thing about the band that I think was important is that most bands, I think the people in the bands, you develop friendships as a result of being in a band together. Mm-hmm. With us, it was very much the opposite, where we were all so tight that the band was very much an extension of us being so close to begin with. So the band wasn't, re- I mean, it was defining in the sense that we had this bonding experience, like saving Private Ryan kind of stuff together. Mm-hmm. But our friendships weren't contingent on it. Like, right. so even though the band went bust and went away, we're still super tight. We're still huge parts of each other's lives and we still talk every couple of days and we're still really awesome. important to each other. So, I, you know, the, the band part of it's a bummer, Yeah. but frankly, if I had to choose between that and having these friendships, lifelong friendships, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Do you credit um, going through all that to pushing you to concentrate more on, or getting work as a storyboard artist or a comic book artist? So how, how, yeah, let's, let's talk about that part of your life that brought you from Vegas to LA and, well, um, I've I've said this I, when I do panels and stuff. Um, I learned to storyboard essentially because my father was a bastard, um, and I loved him. And, uh-huh. and but he was kind of a bastard. He was um, 
because he was, you know, had an ad agency, he was a big commercial director in the seventies and eighties and all that stuff. And um, when I was a little, little kid, um, you know, he was like hot shy. He was handsome. He had this great, rich voice. He was very intelligent. You know, <laughs> you have a like, great, you have a great, rich voice, oh, by the way, too. You. But I'm he, not hitting on him, Jenna. Wow. I'm just saying he has but, a good voice. <laughs> but he was like Don. But he was like Don Draper for real. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, to where my mom can't even watch Mad Men because it reminds her so much of my dad. Wow. It freaks her out. Wow, interesting. But, um, so my dad, we'd go to New York to see him, and he'd be more interested in banging Venezuelan models two at a time. So he'd pawn me off on... Right. and Because back then, it wasn't like it is now. They used to have a bullpen of storyboard artists. who's these old dudes like with cigars and Glenn Levitt. You know, oh. all right, kid. It's just like drawing <laughs> Spider-Man, but it's a guy with a Pepsi. Go. So I'd spend weekends learning that craft just because he didn't want to deal with us. And um, over a number of years, I mean, like by the time I graduate high school, I figured I did hundreds of thousands of dollars of free work for his agency. Wow. But, but I, I mean, I learned from these amazing guys and I learned, um, so you're, you learn on the spot. You already have that ta- oh, yeah. talent inside you anyway, but then you got to learn on the yeah, spot. And I think because I was so into film and I was so into comics, I was so steeped in all that. It's such a, there's such a direct lineage uh-huh. with storyboarding. And, you know, I think people forget and I know a lot of storyboard artists because we're a pretty tight knit community, but like people forget we're the only people in a whole production with the word story in our job title. Like true. my field of expertise mm-hmm. is not drawing as much as it is storytelling um, and storytelling can manifest. I mean the way, like I'm very blessed and fortunate that I can do all these different things, but the one thread that runs through them all, it's, it's all goes back to storytelling. Yeah. It all goes back to this academic thing of being able to relay a story and making it real and make creating something that people give a shit enough or are vested enough in right, right. to buy into. And um, to me, and, and a lot of my favorite stuff, whether it's songwriters or films or TV shows or writers, it all goes back to that. It's the discipline of storytelling and it's storytelling as a concept rather than like a quaint little anecdote. When you're, when you're, um, so that being said, um, when you're working on storyboards, who is the person that you work the most with? The writer of the script or the director? Oh, the director. I, the yeah. director. Yeah. Right. Because storyboarding is, I mean, fundamentally, it, it's you're directing. It's just paper. In my case, you know, a digital tab. But I mean, pen and paper is your medium instead of a camera. But all the same theory applies. Right. I mean, even down to um, acting and performing, capturing gestures, capturing specific facial expressions to sell stuff. Because you want to convey as much as you can in terms of storytelling, like all the, if you're trying to get a job as a storyboard artist or a comic book artist, which are similar, usually the litmus test for people that are going to hire you is they want to see a sequence of drawings that conveys a story without any words. Right. And it's a lot tougher than it sounds to do convincingly. Um, So um, usually it's the director because you're doing the storytelling part, but then there's also the technical part where you have to do the compositional stuff. Um, some directors want to incorporate lighting mm-hmm. into the stuff. Um, it's special effects. It's, ha- you know, all there's, right. and each director is so radically, radically different from each other. Like I've worked with guys who pretty much just hand me the script and say, do your thing. And then I've worked with guys who were super, super anal retentive about right, it. Who want right. to like supervise every minuscule thing. Um, and then I've worked with guys who are super indecisive. Um, I actually got into trouble with one big commercial guy. We were doing a car commercial. And I, my dad directed car commercials all when I was growing up. Like, at the end of the, every car commercial is the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. dude, 
and I'm not, there's a craft to it. And, and But come on, you're not doing The Shining. It's not The Godfather, for God's sake. It's, right. it's a car going around a windy hill right. on the side of some hill in California and or Hawaii, yeah. you know. Um, and now they usually do the cars CGI, so it's not even... And um and this guy was just agonizing over this. It was like a thirty second spot, like he was doing Citizen Kane. And I and I made it. It was a joke, but it was. I guess it was inappropriate because he got really pissed off. <laughs> oh no! But I'm like, dude, I and you know, because I had done like hundreds of revisions on a thirty second, hundreds. Wow! And it it was supposed to be like a three day job. It took like two and a half, three weeks. And I'm turning down other work because I'm yeah. bound to this thing. I was like, dude, listen, man. I'm like, I would spend less time deciding if I was going to pull the plug on my mom after an accident. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> for God's sake, it's a car commercial, you know? Oh, so it runs the gamut. And, yeah. and usually, and I think this is true of a lot of things, usually the more accomplished someone is, the less of a pain in the ass they are because they're more confident. I find that in almost all well, that, areas exactly. of life. I, absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you there. Um, I have a question about like the, because you said, You've done storyboards. I didn't know you did storyboards for commercials. I know you've done them for film. Um, <clears throat> someone had told me, and of course I don't know it's true. You will know if this is true or not. Um, are storyboards needed less and less for movies now, or are they still used a lot? Um, they're still used a lot. I don't know if it's a matter of, You know, it's funny. I think even within the storyboard community, there's a lot of talk about this because a lot of it's going digital where it's pre-vis and it's CG, and, right. um, and those are great tools. The one thing that can't storytelling is kind of an amorphous thing, and yeah. you, it's very difficult to convey that technologically. Um, and there's some directors who love storyboards and use them religiously. Mm-hmm. There's some storyboards who do them, them, or some directors who do them themselves. Like Ridley Scott's a tremendously accomplished illustrator. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, he studied yeah. art in Paris. He's that's why mm-hmm. all his stuff so classically composed. He's right. tremendously talented. Wow. Um, Hitchcock know, did a yeah. lot of his and own. And the Coen brothers do. Oh, yeah. Um, Zack Snyder does a lot of his yeah. own stuff or supervises his own stuff because he's such a big comic geek. And James Cameron, who is a complete madman, um, not only do, is he a great writer and director, but, I mean, he does his own concept design. He does his own, supervises all that oh. art and boards. The Coen brothers and, don't do their own. I just know they use them. Like, no, but they okay. use them yeah, yeah. religiously. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't know some of those directors that, uh, that's that's... Fascinating. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I heard a great story about Ridley Scott when he was up and coming because um, his first movie was called The Duelist, but that hadn't come out yet. Uh-huh. And he had alien, the script for Alien had been going around L.A. for years and no one wanted to do it because everyone thought it was, you know, rubber suit and like 1950s, right, right. like corny. And so he saw it as this opportunity to make it his own thing and really establish himself because no one else wanted it. So he had a meeting with Fox. And on the flight from London to L.A. for the meeting, he storyboarded the whole movie on a yellow legal pad. And he also had a copy of H.R. Giger's The Necronomicon with him, which Uh is his art book with all that crazy biomechanical stuff because he had just seen a showing a couple weeks before that. He went to the office. Not only did he get the gig, but they, like, upped the budget and the whole thing just on the strength of him being able to present. Uh Uh-huh. This visual element above and beyond what the script was. That's amazing. Now, was the Duelist uh, the one that was shot in Ireland? I think so. Okay, because yeah. this is just—I went to the dog park. I'm just going to tell you this story. When I lived in Colombia, you had a I went, gun duel in the dog park. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> oh, okay. close. No, that would have been close. a sweet story. So there is this guy who, gosh, he was in his 80s or so, and he's just sitting on one end of the dog park with no shirt on and tanning himself with his arms outstretched, tanning himself. And I saw, 
I assumed his car was the one um, parked close because it was just a big Cadillac that an older person would own, quite honestly. And it was nice, you know, and you can tell by someone's sunglasses and the shoes they're wearing. It's like, this guy's got some, even though they're just shorts and whatever, this guy's whatever, he's got some money. But my dog went up to was playing with his dog and I'm just standing there and I don't start conversations just because I'm super shy. I'm just standing there, but oh boy, he wanted to start a conversation. He's like, hey there, you you talk like this, you talk like a Hollywood producer. So we're talking, talking, talking. And I went and fact-checked all of this because this could be like crazy bullshitter story. But he, um, I forget what shows, um, but something like Hogan's Heroes, it's not Hogan's Hogan's Heroes, but um, he used to write jokes for them and he was an actor for a while. And then he became a production partner and he just brought this name up of, you know, Ridley Scott is. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, we did commercials together. We did so yeah. many commercials together. He's like, we made so much money, you know. And then he wanted, he wanted to be an artist. He wanted to, oh, he wanted to be a film director. I don't know why that was so important. He tells this long story about him going to Ireland. And when he came back, he, he brought me this, he told me about Alien. And, yeah. and he said, he goes, he told him over and over again, it would be career suicide. Yeah. The great thing about this guy is he was owning all of it. Like, oh, I, yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. It's like, but he said, you know, I don't get it. He goes, I've seen the movie. I still don't get it. Well, my <laughs> dad know? my dad was the one that had told me a lot of that because yeah. my dad had had some dealings with him when they were doing commercials. When they were doing commercials, and yeah. And, they, and he worked with him up until, um, what's the Orlando Bloom one? Oh, Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, yeah. I think they worked together until Kingdom of Heaven. And he talked about, I was like, I went home, I got online, just because this is a great story. And I want to make sure that he wasn't making all of it up. But, <laughs> right. But right. all of it was true. But I thought that was so fascinating. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're all artists and we all have people tell us no. That's not a good idea, you know. But he obviously, it's, it's such gr- it's a great story. So you know that you don't just take the first no. Well, I think, you know? I think visionary is a, <laughs> is a phrase that gets tossed around so mm-hmm. arbitrarily anymore it doesn't really mean anything but Ridley Scott really mm-hmm. was and is I mean yeah. he's one of those few guys that like yeah. you know he is in that upper rarefied air with like Kubrick and Hitchcock oh, and those guys where um and Alien was another one my, I remember my dad took me to see that at some screening like a director's go screening when I was a kid and aside from being completely scarred and horrified because I was way too young to see it I just was my mom took us out of the theater because we lived in Hong Kong, like I said. Oh I think God. I was telling you guys before uh, we started recording, and American movies only came by once in a while, so they took us in. I don't know if they didn't have the R restricted on the thing, but my mom just grabbed me during the stomach part and just, and yeah. It was and a, we're done. <laughs> yeah, and we're done, which made it, like, it took me so long to revisit it because in my head, I thought that oh. was, like, the worst, if my mom took me out of oh, that. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I'm not surprised it. But, you you know, but it was interesting because I, and I, I, that's one of these movies that I watch over and over again, because every time I watch it, I pick something different up. Um, But yeah, that was that and Aliens, Aliens even more so, because Aliens, I was a little older and like Ebert, Aliens blew my mind. I loved Aliens. I still do love Aliens. That's that's one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, and you have, they, they both, Alien and Aliens have a, Different tone, you know, one's definitely more action driven and everything, but man, it still gets the job done. It still tells a great story. Well, and it's, a, you, know? you know, it's a great test because, I mean, I think Cameron, Cameron has a reputation for being a bit of a madman. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess it's well-deserved. I don't know. I've never worked for him. I yeah. love the guy. I love yeah. his work. Yeah. I don't know him personally, 
but I know enough people who have worked with him and I always get the same thing from everybody that's worked with him is they're like, yeah, he can be kind of prickly and act kind of nuts, but they're like, you have to understand he's a rare example of a guy. He can literally do everyone on a production. He can do their job better than them. Yeah. He's like, imagine how frustrating that would be. Like you, all you want to do is clone yourself. So you can do it all yourself, but you physically can't. You can't do it. And um, he, they said he just has this <laughs> slow burn thing, but he's like, the, he's just a, got an insane work. I mean, the guy's never had a flop. He's never had a movie that wasn't, I no. mean, what are the two top movies of all time? The Titanic and Avatar? Yeah. Right? And then yeah. there's Aliens, yeah. The Abyss. Then, then, then there's all his other movies. True Lies, the ter- Terminator and Terminator yeah. 2. Dude, yeah. why, don't you, why don't you have a successful and movie for a change, for and, God's sake? Exactly, and they're also game changers. They're movies that, oh. that changed how Defining. effects are done, changed how storytelling is done. Same with Ridley Scott. They're game changers in the industry. And and, and yeah. Cameron in particular, you know what's crazy about him above and beyond all that? Like, that wasn't enough. Is, you know, he's so brilliantly technically minded. Like, you know, the submersible at the beginning of Titanic they used to go down and explore? Yeah. He designed and built that. That's so Dude, look wild. at the big brain on James. Cameron, what are you doing? That's insane. Like, that was a genius. And, good, and, and, good God. And I, I'm glad that um, he chose an artistic route because it sounds like he would have been a great scientist or worked for oh, NASA yeah. or whatever, but yeah. he got to uh, tell us stories. Um, I want to talk about the, the Sable Corsair. Before I get to that, I wanted to ask you, because I was looking at your IMDb resume and seeing all the movies that you did st- storyboards on. Because, um, you know, I love 30 Days of Night. I think it's a fun, you know, and, and um, Inception and a bunch of other. Was there one movie that that you loved just as an artist more than the others? Like, this is really fun. Um, yeah. They, yeah. That would have been Spider-Man 4 that uh-huh. unfortunately never got made. And it's funny, just a couple months ago, there's this big blow up online where I, um, I, I'd done so many, I worked with Sam Raimi on a number of consecutive movies and, um, Spider-Man four was, we were super excited and it was great. And he's, he's such a pleasure to work with. He makes it so easy. So I love that guy, but you know, it, it never happened. And there's always kind of this mystique about it because it got so close to being made and it never did. So years ago, I I created my own website and there was no grand design. I really just did it to get work and have a portfolio and stuff. So I put some of the, and Sam's really weird about storyboards. Um, He doesn't like them being released. He doesn't do books about them. He doesn't include them in like production, but you know, the art of whatever the movie is, never boards. Um, And it, I respect it's just how he feels and that's cool. Um, So, but I figured under the circumstances, because it never got made, I just put, maybe a dozen up that were totally out of sequence. Nothing could be kind of gleaned from them. Right. You know? Right. And this was like three years ago. So a month or two, it was like more like eight weeks ago. I woke up and I got this thing from Facebook that I, my work from Spider-Man 4 is the top trending story on Facebook what? and Twitter. And it, every news outlet in the world picked up. And I, to this day, I have no idea why. Because it was like this big deal, like, oh, and there's this artwork, and it was like this insight into, I have no clue. I somebody still, And you still don't know. You still no, don't know somebody how told was. me it was because someone on a Reddit thread had seen the Reddit work will and do it. thought it was cool, and, and whoever that was, I'm really grateful because that's yeah. great. But yeah, we woke up, and Jen's like, dude, did you send this Spider-Man stuff to somebody? I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was just, and then I got like 50 requests for, can we run this? Can we, do you want to do an interview? And I'm like, what the hell? I, I, yeah. Just, and I don't I mean not that I'm complaining. It was it was a really cool little kick, but it had been up for like three years. It wasn't like it was a secret. It wasn't yeah, like I yeah. just posted it. Yeah. Um. 
But that was really fun, man. And, and I bet you that was. And Sam, because he's a huge Spider-Man geek. He's a huge comic geek, period. Right. And he's such a sweet guy, and he's such a genuine... I mean, he's so not the the, the Hollywood cliche about directors, and he he's not a megalomaniac. He's none of those things. He's yeah. like this... He's just such a sweetheart. I'd take a bullet for that guy. I love that guy. Oh, I love Sam Raimi, And too. he made it yeah. so easy when I came in, because I was such a huge fan of his, and I had worked on some stuff before then, but not as closely with him as for this. Like, he produced 30 Days a Night, and I had done some stuff for Spider-Man 3, but but he actually called me in specifically to work very closely with him on this, which that alone is very flattering. And then, you know, I go into his office, and he's got this great voice, and, you know, and I'm so tall, and he's he's a lot smaller than I am, and he's like, hey, buddy, so nice to meet you. Now come over here. We're going to talk <laughs> Spider-Man. And so he's got on his desk, he's got this whole box of like action figures and comics and uh-huh. all the Spider-Man stuff. And I'm just looking, you know, and there's like a deadite head over here. And oh, like right. he's got so the chainsaw. So before you ever met him, you were oh, an huge, Evil Dead fan? Huge, yeah? huge, okay. huge fan. Um, so we, uh, so he starts acting, He, you know, and I, he'd read the script to me. And then he's blocking everything out with action figures and he's flying them around and he's doing this. Oh my and, gosh. And I'm just sitting there and I started spontaneously laughing. Uh-huh. Like really laughing, and I couldn't. I was embarrassed because you know I couldn't control it. And I I was I kept apologizing. And he sat down. And he's like, "What's so funny?" And I, and I said, "Man, I, I said I, you just got to understand. This is so surreal. I'm like, yeah. what fucking alternate reality did I wake up in where I'm even having this conversation with you? It just yeah. is surreal." And and he's like, "Oh, it's okay, buddy. We're gonna have a great time." <laughs> I love and it. um, and the other thing, <laughs> uh, I've uh, there's another great Sam story from Spider Man. Um, Because it was all really new to me, the pro- not the process, but him giving me, I was working so closely with him and I was so kind of in the middle of this whole big thing. Um, and he knew I was a big fan. So he came in one day and he's like, he told me that Bruce Campbell was coming to see him that afternoon. And I was like, Sam, look, I, please, I don't want to be that guy, but please, if <laughs> please. you could just, if I could just shake his hand or just say hi, it would mean really mean, he's like, I'll see what I can do. You know, he's kind of prickly, whatever. So. Later that afternoon, now my office was like a three-walled office that there was no window and there was a door in and out that I was facing. But other than that, it's just, yeah. you know, and I'm working and I hear this booming voice go, Henderson. And I, I look up and he's standing at the door, like with his, fur, it's Bruce Campbell with his fur brow. He's wearing a yellow Hawaiian shirt. Of and course gold he Italian is. horn. Of he's beautiful he and tan and his curly ass <laughs> white teeth. He's like, and he's like, Henderson. I'm like, Oh my God, Mr. Campbell. And I drop what I'm doing and I run up and I go to shake his hand and I hold my hand and he swats my hand away. <laughs> and he's like, don't give me that shit. And I'm like, well, it's really nice to meet you. He's like, oh, okay. It's really nice to meet me, is it? And I'm like, I, and I'm looking around, there's nobody. And I'm like, I don't know what's, what's going. He's like, let me tell you something, pal. And he goes like this. He's like, you see this profile? You see this chin? This is a copyrighted image, pal. You can't just arbitrarily, willy-nilly do your little cartoons with this face. You know what I'm saying? I have no idea what he's talking about, right? Right, right. So then it dawned on me, I had pitched Sam this idea, a couple ideas for cameos, because Bruce Campbell's always doing always cameos. Always doing a cameo, And I had yeah. great ones. I had two really good ideas for Spider-Man 4 that we had up on the board. So yeah. he, that's who he's pointing to. And I started laughing. I'm like, oh, well, I thought it was a cameo. He's like, you thought? He's like, what, are you the director now? You thought? You're not paid to think. And he's really selling it. And I'm like, dude, oh, my God. And um, so I'm like, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to I'm gonna have to throw down with Bruce Campbell in my office. And, and right when I'm like, I... You know, there's that moment where, like, all the blood leaves your face, and I'm like, oh, God, please don't hit me. And then he goes like this, and your viewers can't see this, but he goes. 
and he, he, he gives me a big hug and yeah. he's like squeezing me. He's like, it's so great to meet you. He's like, Sam's been telling me it's, I've been, really been looking forward to it. I'm like, oh, you know, I've got like little hearts floating over my shoulders. Right, like, oh, of course. Cam. And he does this, have you ever been to one of his panels? He does his panels that way where he just yells at everybody. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's, it's hilarious. People go to ask questions just so they can walk away saying yeah. Bruce Campbell yelled at He me. was so great. And then oh, that's, that's a, what a wonderful, him, wonderful story. Oh, then he goes and I'm showing him more of the drawings. And then he goes back into character. He starts tapping his foot. And he's like, yeah. listen, he's like, I don't know about you, but my time's worth something. He's like, hey, that's why I'm on the screen and you're sitting here behind a desk. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, Campbell? I've I've had just about enough of your crap. And he goes, that's my boy. That's, that's my, my boy. boy. I love it. Let's move on to the uh, the Sable Corsair, which is the Star Wars fan film short that you made. Um, first of all, can you, before we talk about the, you know, the conception of the idea and everything, um, can you explain the award that you won? Well, it was the um, Lucasfilm has this fan film awards, which is kind of like their sanctioned. Uh-huh. They, they know people want to do fan films, and rather than get into some legal thing, they provide... They, they avoided the Star Trek mess, oh, basically. That's a whole different conversation, <laughs> yeah. But they did... A, and they're actually really... All things considered, they're very equitable. Like it, the, yeah. the, uh, the, I thought the guidelines were totally cool. Mm-hmm. And they did the contest for years and years and years. They stopped for a few years, and I think for The Force Awakens and this resurgence, they wanted to start the program. Oh, so there like was again. like... They weren't doing... Yeah, there was a gap, okay. right, of yeah. some years where they didn't do it. And um, so we had... Our film was fortunate enough. We got the audience choice where there were three main awards. There was the filmmakers, the audience choice, and then there's the the, the spirit award was the third one. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, I mean, what do you say? And the fact that it was the, because the, we want, it was the fans voted. So I mean, yeah. it was Star Wars fans that. So it's truly the fans that loved and, it, yeah. And we heard when we were in London, because we went to London for the ceremony and everything, and they said we won by, like, a huge, huge margin. So it wasn't just, oh, my friends helped right. me win. It was just like, no, fans went, Star Wars yeah. fans went to yeah. it and thought you captured the spirit, because I loved it, and the the way. O- Oh, thank yeah. you. And the other two films were great. Like, yeah. um, the, the, the I think the Edwards brothers did the, the filmmakers one, which yes. is the TK. the Stormtrooper which one. Which is great. Yeah. And that was great, too, man. Those guys knocked. Yeah. They just released, like, a 12-minute cut of that, which is fantastic yeah. those guys and they're super cool man and like and i think it caught lucas a little off guard because i didn't think they they didn't think that so many people from the states would show up for the ceremony i think they thought it was going to be like a little side thing where they just announced the winners but like the guys that did the tk movie showed up and we showed up mm-hmm. and then um the the gentleman that did the generations movie showed up and everybody was totally cool and they were they treated us wonderfully oh, it, that's was, fantastic. it was so great it was so, so here's the most, the I thing. think the most important thing um, that happened to you out of everything is, is what does the trophy look like? The statue, explain the statue. The trophy is so bitching. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. It, okay, imagine an Oscar, yes. but if the Oscar was a stormtrooper holding a camera instead of a blast. I love it. It's sweet with a capital with a capital sleeve. And it's uh and it's gold and it's heavy yeah. and it's like it's, it's about a foot tall. It's, it's That's fantastic. So tell me um how so you wrote the movie, you directed the movie and you star in the film. Well, I, I co-directed it with mm-hmm. a really good buddy of mine. Right. Um and we kind of split the chores cuz I don't think physically it would have been possible to do it. To in, wear in all the amount those of time hats. that we had yeah. and and the amount of work that we tried to do it would have been impossible. So I um I wrote it, storyboarded it, co-directed it, co-starred in it, and then 
kind of post-supered it. I was going to say, you were probably involved on all the, the editing oh, yeah. process and everything as yeah. well. And then, um, and those, you know, Nick, who I did it with, is aside from being one of my best friends, is, is he's a working actor. And uh-huh. he, his dad owned an effects studio when he was growing up. So he's pretty well-versed in a lot of areas of production. So us doing it together, I think it afforded us an opportunity to do an inordinate amount of work. In a, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. We did probably six months worth of work in about eight weeks. It was crazy. Wow, that's amazing. Um, And uh, it just, you know, when I first heard about the contest, I'd had this idea floating around. So you heard about the contest and that's yeah. what motivated this idea that you're already Yeah, had. well, yeah. I, it, I had the germ of this idea yeah. kicking around already. And then, and it was like all these lines kind of converged at one time. And, and Nick and his brother, Chris, and then his girlfriend, Alex, who were all in the movie, um, we're all a really good tight group of friends. And we have been talking about forever because we were all, we actually met studying acting together really intensely in uh-huh. the theater and that kind of stuff. And um, for a long time, we'd been kicking around. We want to have a project that we can all work on, that we can all contribute to. But just one thing or another just didn't work out. And then I just had this idea that I was like, well, the contest gives us, it gives us guidelines. So we can't be too precious about it. There's a hard deadline. So we can't be too precious about it. Um, and That's let's, a, that could be a really big motivating yeah, factor. And I, was yeah. like, and I was thinking, embrace the limitations and kind of write it around that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had the crew, I mean, just the crew of five of us, we're all friends and we all work together already. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of went from there. And then, um, me and Nick kind of divided up as many tasks as we could to get what needed to be done in the time that we had. And, um, the shoot was kind of, was pretty brutal. Well, you, um, yeah, I can't wait to ask you about the location on that. Um, so see if I, if there's anything else to add to this, it's, it's a film about a crew of smugglers on a ship named the Sable Corsair that after some unfortunate events crash lands on a hostile planet and the adventure begins. Yeah. Begins there. I got that right. Okay. So you, you wrote it. Um, but then you crowdfunded it yeah, and that, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of went gangbusters. Yeah, right? that was, well, we really didn't want to. I mean, I think we were all really, really reluctant about crowdfunding. Why? Um, partly because I think we all felt that's a card that you want to save to do <clears throat> something on your own. Like, you know, I've, I've had experience working on other people's properties and there's a certain amount of autonomy that you have to forfeit because you don't own the thing you're working on. Right. Um, which can be problematic. And the other thing is, I think, um, I, I don't know. How, it, we almost felt like it might've been cheating a little bit. Like, you know, cause fan phones, we imagine it like duct tape and, and balsa wood and like that kind of stuff. But what we wanted to do was so ambitious. And we had even talked about all of us selling stuff and, and we, we inventoried each other's accounts and we we're like, there ain't no way we can do this. We can do this. Yeah. So it was more last resort where we're like, we have to crowdfund it or we're not going to get it done. And we were all kind of bummed out about it because we were like, no one's going to give us, what are we, 10? It's like asking your parents for money. It's a hard, like, I think, especially, um, yeah, I, I'm the same way, especially when you have a long, which it sounds like you do, do um, history in, in performing, like theater and all that kind of stuff, especially when I was in my 20s. Um, it was all about pulling your own resources oh, together, absolutely. like you said, the duct tape yeah. and doing it. And, yeah. and we hated. So there is a part of you that. Yeah, there's a gets, punk rock thing about it. Where, yeah. And yeah. the other thing is me and Nick both as personalities have this in common where we would rather lose an arm than ask for help. 
just as yeah. an overall yeah. thing. And it's not, honestly, it's not necessarily a good trait. It's gotten me, I, I know I've, like, it stopped me from probably no, doing some projects. The so. crowdfunding thing was a, a really important lesson because yeah. not only did it work out, but everyone was so amazing and gracious and, like, so many people support us. Like, to, to this day, like, we're really, it's sincere, man. It's really humbling and it really made me take an inventory of how I right. looked at a lot of that stuff because everyone was so excited and great and just so supportive. And like, like Christ, me and Nick would call each other like on the verge of tears. Like, man, did you see the numbers? Thing? Yeah. Did you see my uncle gave me like a hundred bucks? Yeah. He didn't have to do that. It was cool. Yeah. You know, I got to go eat some chicken. So I'm getting sad. You know, like, <laughs> I have to go eat my feelings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then it, then it got, you know, big, where people that came out of the woodwork, like people we never would have anticipated. Right. It was so cool. And then we had done it through GoFundMe. Because there, there was an immediacy about getting the money that the other ones don't have. Like, each one of them have their own caveats. Own rules, yeah. But under the circumstances, that mm-hmm. seemed to be the best fit. And GoFundMe was not only amazing, but they wrote us this really great letter saying that they were so inspired at, by oh, our wow. idea and how the momentum and what we were doing. They actually refunded some of our fees and donated themselves. That's amazing. What, that is amazing. Which, what do you say to that? You know what I mean? It was it was crazy. So then, um, even with all the crowdfunding money, we still are in it. Me and Nick both took a hit personally, just because you know it always gets above of and course. beyond what yeah. you thought. Yeah. But um, we made it a little bit go a long way, and I thought we were really resourceful. And you know, the other thing is, I kind of like working with less because I think it forces you to be more creative. Absolutely. Um, I don't. I think very few problems get solved by throwing more money at yeah. them. Um. And when you're really boxed in the corner, if it's do or die, I mean, we, we came up with a lot of really clever solutions, I think. Well, you're just talking about Sam Raimi and uh, Bruce Campbell. As a matter of fact, one of my uh, favorite autobiographies is, is Bruce Campbell's. From, <laughs> have you read like 15 years? Like, what is yeah. it? Confessions of a B-movie actor? It's, yeah. it's something like that. Yeah. And he, when he talked about making the first Evil Dead movie, it's exactly what you're talking about, Jeff, where they, I mean, they invented some, you know, everybody knows those shots, you know, and they were done with duct, you know, making the camera go back and forth yeah. and all that stuff that Sam Raimi is, is, is famous for came, you know, out of, you know, having to do it. We have to figure out a yeah, way to absolutely. do it. We don't, we can't get a crane. We can't do this. How are we going to do it? Well, and you, and that, it's funny that you bring that up because that was a big part of doing a Star Wars movie. Me and Nick had this really long talk before we shot a frame about people forget, I think, with the time and how big it's become, but the first a new hope when they did start was a disaster. The shoot was a disaster. It was one mm-hmm. of the, it's like up there with apocalypse now. The about studio legendary, had no faith in it. You yeah. know, the crew were making fun of him. People were quitting people. You know, it was terrible. There were sandstorms and, and then we had the bright idea like, Oh yeah, let's go back to the same location. They did return of the Jedi and shoot a Star Wars movie. Great idea. You know, and it was all the same stuff happened. We had these disastrous windstorms. We lost like half our shooting time. We couldn't fly the drones because it was, you got, you know, was so the, bad. Now was that literally, in the middle of nowhere, or was there a road behind you? Because, I mean, I I say this not just from seeing the film. Of course, you're not going to see that in the film, but from uh, pictures that you were posting and that Jenna was posting, it was just like, where the F are they? Yeah, well, um, we, we found out it, it was in the Glamis Imperial Dunes, which is about three and a half hours southeast of L.A., okay. I think. And um, it's right near where they t- shot Return of the Jedi, the Sarlacc Pit with yes. Jabba's. I think the ruins of that are still out there somewhere. Oh, wow. But, Buried in sand somewhere. Right. <laughs> and half the budget that we had 
went to like the permits and the insurance just to be able to shoot there. Like mm-hmm. that was half our money just to be able to do it. Wow. But the but the location was so important to us and I think you can see it. Like and I don't have any delu- you know it's hard for me to be objective about the film. I mean, not that I'm not proud of it and I don't like it or that but I don't I can't see it objectively, but I do know that the location on film looks pretty badass and it it's that alone makes it Star mm-hmm. Warsy. Yeah. Um and it, the location we had to use like GPS plotters and all this stuff. So there's like a road that you just drive. It's keep driving past Palm Springs, and it looks like Kansas. It's just flat, and uh-huh. you go by the Salton Sea and like all this stuff. And then after you know like two hours, me and Nick are looking at each other like, dude, did we miss a turn? Are we going to end wow. up in like some desert? Hills flat? have eyes, yeah, like some guy with a chainsaw. <laughs> and then you make this, you turn around this bend. And you, all you see is flat farmland, and you m- turn this bend, and you go up this little, and over this hill, and it's like someone rolls Tatooine out in a carp, like a carpet, wow. funny, like as far as the eye can see, it's just those rolling dunes, and you, and we both we had to stop the truck because we got chills. Oh my god, it's Tatooine, we're here! Oh my god, and um, it was that immediate. So th- we found this one location that we we got the permits for, where you come up that road, and it's elevated about fifty or sixty feet above where uh-huh. the dunes are. So there's like a big parking lot, and then all the shooting locations were within a quarter mile of that parking lot. Oh, that's lot. good. Yeah. Um, because it just goes on and on and on. But the, there's some stuff you don't anticipate, like how physically demanding it is to troll up and to down walk those hills. through that sand. And there's a weird optical illusion. The lady from the park service was explaining this to us, where because of the, the color and because of the way it rolls— Something that looks like it's 100 yards away is probably more like a quarter mile away. And that once you start rolling up and down, it's so... And, you know, we're wearing, on on the shoot, we're wearing leather jackets and long sleeves. And, you know, the guy playing the droid, poor Jeff, got heat stroke. We almost had to take him to the hospital. That's right, because his face is completely covered. Oh, yeah. And he was such a trooper. That guy's such a rock star. He was amazing. I mean... Well, what about those freaking... How did you get people from the 501st to come? You just call them up or... Because I, that that's amazing when you see the stormtroopers oh, yeah. on well, the dunes. The 501st, um, we had ha- I'd had a hell of a time rallying stormtroopers. Because right. that really made the whole thing. The, the, the whole thing's contingent on having the stormtroopers. Yeah. And I just, and I'd talked to some of the organizers of the five, and everyone was great. And they were very helpful. But they were like, oh, scheduling-wise, we don't know if it's going to work out. I mean, yeah. everyone's kind of scattered all over the place. And because we were shooting so far south, that's a different regimen than L.A. and, you know, all this yeah. stuff. And I was really sweating, man, because we, we didn't know what to do. There was no substitute, like, and the ball had already started rolling. Uh-huh. So thank God, Jen was at a Comic-Con uh-huh. and just happened. We had talked on the phone, and I was talking to her about how frustrated I was. I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can't find any stormtroopers. We can't even go buy the costumes because they're not going to read on film well enough. Yeah, and 501st, they're going to have badass. Yeah. So <laughs> she was at the con and literally walked by their booth. I was, I was about to say, was it the booth? Did yeah. you find their booth? And she's <laughs> like, guys! Guys, my boyfriend's making a Star Wars movie. He really needs Stormtroopers. Can can I just talk to you for a minute? Can I just talk to you about it? So sure enough, Steve Copeland, who is one of the Sand Troopers from that uh-huh. regiment, had was the one that talked to Jen, and he hit me up. And he's just he's a cool cat. Just aside from the fact yeah. he's a badass Stormtrooper, he's just a great guy. And he called me and was um, was really helpful. And he's like, look, he's like, I can't make any promises, but it sounds great. Send me some material. Let me see what I can do. I'll try to rally the troops. Uh-huh. So I sent him everything. I sent him storyboards, concept art, scripts. So yeah, and that everything. way he knew, oh, this is legit. This is yeah. a real deal. They're taking this seriously. Because that was, quality. that was part yeah. of it too, is part of the reason that I wanted to do the pre-production and, and put so much time and work into it wasn't just 
because we needed it to shoot the movie. It was a sell tool where a lot of the talent we were able to bring to the movie was because we had this tangible evidence that we're not clowns. Uh-huh. It's one thing to say, oh, I've got right. this idea. Mm-hmm. But if someone doesn't know you, you can't expect them to take your word yeah. for it, especially when it involves three days in the desert and heat and no mm-hmm. pay. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to do everything I physically could possibly could to show people that we were legit and that we were really vested and we really wanted to do something good. I don't, and again, objectively, it's hard for me to say if we did or not, it's, but that was, that's what we were trying to to get to was we wanted people to understand it was aspirational, that we really wanted it to be as good as we could do. Right. Right. Oh, well, it it turned out amazing. Um, What was the craziest thing that happened on that location? It sounds like a lot of stuff happened, but was there one that was just like, um, there Holy were the two, the two craziest things. One was the sandstorm where we woke up. We had lost the whole day going in. And by the time we had shot the first frame, me and Nick had both, neither of us, neither of us had slept for almost 50 hours. Um, we, we shot the whole rest of the day like that. So by the time we went to bed, we'd been up for close to 60, oh, which wow. is crazy. That's crazy stuff starts to happen. Uh, yeah. The next day we woke up and there was a sandstorm so bad that it was blowing the RV back and forth and that Nick's parents had come out. They had gotten a separate RV to do like craft services because we ended up having so many people come out and they'd set up this big like 10 by 20 tent. So we woke up with RV moving back and forth and the tent was upright like this blowing. The poles had blown into Nick's truck and all the equipment and chairs and tables had gotten blown like 50 yards out into the oh, desert. Oh my goodness. So, and it so lasted, did you lose all day? Oh, well, half a day. It lasted yeah. for hours and we were going to do, um, and it was so bad we couldn't use the mics. We couldn't use anything. And then um, we had talked about, well, let's take the opportunity because there's the one sequence, the montage where they're trudging through the desert dunes right, and to right. sell that. We're like, well, let's just do that. But we couldn't use the drones to do that either. Uh-huh. So we had the DP set up a camera with like a tent around it to keep the sand from getting into it. And he was fo- zooming in on us and we were up on the ridges and they're yelling at us like, okay, just act like you're having a really hard time. And we're like, who's acting? <laughs> who's acting? This is for real. Yeah, and then Alex, um, who was a, played Adara, that poor, and she's so game. Yeah. But we're going up these dunes and like some of the sand slide, and she got started to get sucked down. Well, because she's, she's petite. Yeah. yeah. We're trying to pull her out. And we thought she's going to get swallowed up. And then Jeff had um, heat stroke because we had to do the one thing where we're going up and down the hill with the, the, the very first shot where it tracks across the wreckage and we're going right. up the hill. It was a crazy steep. You can't, it doesn't, it looks kind of steep on the film, but it's, it's like this. Wow. And um, so he ended up getting heat stroke, which was terrible. So that was crazy. And then the second thing that was crazy was um, we had been contacted from ABC News about, they wanted, they were interested in covering the story for Nightline. They were doing a thing about fan films and they sent a crew out um, to the last day of shooting and they were amazing. They were so much fun and it was, you know, we were kind of afraid either it was going to get in the way or they were going to be real stuffy and rigid and kind yeah. of kill the buzz because we were having, we were just settling into a group where we were really having a good time and enjoying it. And they, that couldn't have been further from the truth. They were amazing. They were amazing. And that was, I remember watching that story. That, yeah. I mean, cause they, they not only were talking about you, they were talking about the brothers you were, oh, you, yeah, you, exactly. you were talking about, but they focused a lot of their time yeah. on you guys. And they, they interviewed everybody. They were there the whole day. Even when this, the, I think ABC called him was like, okay, son, come back. They're like, oh, no, we're going to hang out. And they actually sent the camera guy back in like a Uber. 
from the middle of the <laughs> desert. <laughs> They're like, no, we're going to hang out for a while. And they couldn't have well, been. Well, it's nice that you could get an Uber in the middle yeah, of the I desert, know. I but guess. But they couldn't, have, they couldn't have been nicer. And they made it. It was so much fun. And the, oh, that's the great. third day, the weather finally kind of yeah. agreed with us. And we got so much done. And then Boba Fett and the Stormtroopers showed up. That was really the craziest thing was when the 501st showed up. I mean, we were just so happy. Did you internally scream when you saw them? Oh, there's we have footage where um, we were we had set the thing with the box and the stormtrooper bodies like down in this yeah. g- kind of a gully like in the yeah. pit of the and we knew they were getting dressed but we hadn't seen them yet and they all came over the hill and there's this thing where you can hear everyone audibly gasp oh, like wow. everything stops and you can hear everyone go <gasps> and oh my God. even the guy even Clayton who was the correspondent from ABC was like squee he was <laughs> you know he looked at me and he's like oh my God. Well, in, in my opinion, you're not human if you don't have a reaction. Yeah, and they to even have that. the little thing where like, Jack, we're going on a set. Okay, great. It's both. <laughs> like, yeah. I love it. And um, we, it, it took me a while, like a, a couple minutes, to get over how cool. Yeah. I was really struck by it, and then, and I'm trying to hide it, you know, because I'm like director guy. I'm trying to be cool because everyone's looking to me for what to do. And then Nick comes over, and he's like. I had to take a few minutes to collect myself to get anything to rock. I was just doing the same thing. <laughs> we all were. Yeah, he's like, man, this is like. And what a great um, uh, return for those guys who came out from the 501st for you to get that fan film award. Oh, yeah. Because that's great for their and we, legion and for well, one, what they we do. We couldn't have done it without know? them. And yeah. B, that they were so amazing and yeah. so they were so game. And that's, yeah, it's hard, man. It was walking up in all that armor and yeah. bringing out the armor in the first place because it's so valuable. They invest yeah. such a huge amount of time getting it right. Uh-huh. But And it pays off for you. Oh, and man. every one it of them was so sweet and game and just great. They're all fantastic. I, I can't say enough about them. You said um, uh, your partner's, uh, Nick's parents were there. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and in the pictures I saw from the ABC story and everything, you also had other people on set there uh, working on the project with you, which, and, and no one's getting paid. So it's, it's a labor of love. Um, w- was there anybody that you really needed, like on a certain position that you had to like really twist their arm or did everybody just say, I want to work? No, everybody was really this game. With you. Everybody yeah. was really open and, and really hit it out of the park, man. I couldn't, I mean, I'm sure Nick would tell you the same thing. Like, I couldn't be more, I don't know, I couldn't be more proud of everyone the way they they, they stepped up. And, yeah. and it was hard, you know. Yeah. This wasn't like a cushy thing. I mean, we were in the middle of the damn desert. No, you guys really created something. And it was really and I think, hot and really hard. And, yeah. And no one bitched, no one moaned. Everyone was 110%. And, um, and I'd like to think they're all as proud of it as we are. And everybody in their respective roles did mm-hmm. just a phenomenal job. Well, it it really shows. I did want to ask you um, a question about writing the piece. You know, it's it's such a great um, short and it uses what's given to you in the start. Like you, a big thing is the Kyber crystals and everything. I was like, oh, when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's so cool. That's, I know what those are for, you know, (laughs) Um, like I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I'm not as big of as one as you or, or, or Jenna. Um, but I still know all that shit and stuff. Was there anything, did you pull everything in your story from Star Wars or is there anything that you put in there, like like um, the droid name or anything like that, that that you made up and- Well, yeah, but there's there's some super, super, super geeky stuff. Yeah. Well, the first thing is the, 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 the phrase, the Sable Corsair. I wanted to have something, because the Millennium Falcon is 
undoubtedly the, the greatest spaceship design ever. It's the greatest name for a spaceship oh, ever. absolutely. And yeah. I wanted to have something that could at least be in the same paragraph with the Millennium Falcon and not be embarrassed. Like, it sounds like it at least fits. Right. Um, and then the droid... The droid was tough because I really felt like we needed a droid. And that goes back to one of my favorite video games of all time, a huge game geek, uh-huh. is Knights of the Old Republic, uh-huh. which was their RPG they did set thousands of years before Star Trek. Well, the droids in there are called HK. The designation is HK for hunter killers because they used to be, you know, assassin droids. Right. So that's why ours is HK-67. And I created this whole backstory where, okay, first thing, we, we couldn't afford to hold droid suit. So we have him wearing clothes. Because part of the thing we had to cut out of the movie was he has a total crush on Adara, and he figures that wearing clothes makes him appear more human and will make her more likely to love him. Oh, I love it. And that's where the animosity with Nick's character comes from, because her and Nick are together, Uh and he's got... There's this whole scene that I wish we didn't have to cut out, where he's real passive-aggressive about it, and he's explaining the thing, and right in the middle, he looks at her, and he's like, Mistress, why are you with him? You know, and they get in this whole (laughs) argument, and um, I wouldn't wouldn't fail you like he does, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So... It, I touched on that mythology for that. Uh-huh. And then you want to hear the geekiest part of it? Yes, this I is, do. This is super, super <laughs> I, geeky. I definitely do. Um, when the Sith Witch shows up, uh-huh. uh, and it, again, we had to cut some out of the film so it might not be as clear, but Adara has history with the Sith because she's forced Yeah, power. I knew. I figured that. See, Just be, I mean, that was very, she has something going on that was very aware when exactly. she's above okay, the crystals. That's great. So, yeah. But when they start talking back and forth and it's subtitled, uh-huh. that's actually canon Sith language that I found a, a linguist on oh my LinkedIn God. who worked on the Dark Horse comic series in the early 90s who created a Sith language that's considered canon. So I hit him up on LinkedIn and asked him, I explained what we're doing with the film, and I said, I really would like this to be legit. If I send you the script, uh-huh. can, can you give me any kind of counsel? I'd really uh-huh. like to be authentic. And he was wonderful. And he wrote me back. He said, oh, this is great. And I'm glad to help. So he did written pronunciations. And he translated it and then did it phonetically and yeah. did MP3s to give to Alex and America, the two actors, Holy cow. on how to pronounce it. And they did their own woodshedding on how to pronounce it and sell it. And uh-huh. like, um, Well, it's seamless. I mean, it's a really great part. It gives you chills because uh, all of a sudden they start talking, the subtitles come up and it's just, oh, wow, that's a real. That's so, yeah. Amazing. So it's a, he was he worked that's as a so linguist. Cool. He's a professional. He's a professor of linguistics, but he did stuff officially. And he actually had to call Lucasfilm to get an OK to do the translation. And they're, they're, yeah. since it was uh, being submitted to yeah. that contest that were they, they were fine with it. Yeah. I always find that amazing, like people who've, um, you know, create Elvish or or, yeah. or or Klingon. You know, there's people that are hired to, what's the latest one? <laughs> I forget what it was, a fantasy. Dothraki, oh. there's the Dothraki. That's what I was thinking of Game of yeah. Thrones. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole language that had to be created and everything. And you got to do and that. And he that's was great. Amazing. And he was so cool. And we, we wrote back and forth a lot. And then he, his final one, he sent me an audio message. He's like, look, all this work. He's like, I'm glad to do it. You know, it's it's super fun. I really appreciate it hitting me up. But he's like, let's be honest. If you bullshit it, no one's going to know. And I was like, I'll know. Yeah. Because that's the whole point. If yeah. I'm, if I'm just going to fake it, this is all for nothing. Right. And fortunately, everyone was on board for that, too. Or like the Kyber Crystals, I knew from the mythology. Um, and I knew they were uncolored because uh-huh. once the Jedi, whoever gets the crystal, the color is determined by, by their innate their, yeah. force uh-huh. sensitivity. So 
just finding the Kyber crystals was a bitch because we needed, originally we were going to have them bottom lit so they like radiated, but with the sun being so high, there was no way to do that. Uh-huh. And then we physically couldn't find things that read on camera. So um, our buddy Justin, who was amazing, he and me and Nick found these bags of like little crystals at Michael's. And Justin spent hours creating the crystals, like gluing them together with like epoxy and forming them. Oh, and, wow. Like, and we found the box on Craigslist. So that's probably, that's all, we could probably talk another hour about that is just making of the props and the costumes and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's amazing what went into this. Um, so it's, it's, what is it, about five minutes? It's exactly five minutes. It's exactly five minutes. Um, you win this award. Um, do you want to go and make, because it ends with a cliffhanger. Do you want to go and make the Sable Corsair what you already did longer in, in a perfect world, or do you would you want to work on the next? Well, I, I mean, we, people have been really. It's fun that people are like, "What happens? What happens?" Um, and I mean, I just as a writer, you have to come up with kind of where it goes and the, the before and after. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm I'd be really reluctant to for a lot of reasons. Partly because we did it for a very specific reason under a very specific set of guidelines and rules. Right. The second thing is, again, it's it's Star Wars, so it's like we don't own it, we can't own it, and um, that's a big thing to get invested. Yeah, into I'm very and, reluctant. And, and, and you yeah. mentioned the Star Trek thing earlier. I know yeah. some of the people involved. And that's a mess. Yeah, I do and too. I'm very, yeah. very reluctant to to make that kind of investment in something I can't own or control because I've been to that movie a few times now, yeah. and it's exactly. So that being said, um, two things. Uh, what do you? Hope to get out of this professionally then. Is this... There's been some stuff. I mean, I've, I think some doors are opening and I think it, it particularly, it, you know, it's like, again, it's all these lines converging where I think the film's, you know, it's it's pretty cool and people responded to it. We got a lot of media coverage and I think it's taken seriously enough to where at least people know that we're mm-hmm. not clowns. Um, so I have some opportunities to... to and we'll see. I, at this point, I'm just... Ideally, I would like to do, I want what I'm passionate about and how I make my living to be the same thing and not mutually exclusive, you know? Right. And ideally, I would like to be able to do this on a grander scale or a bigger scale. So it's not, I got, I'm getting this out of the project personally and I'm getting this out of the project professionally. It's, it's, they're all together. Oh, yeah. And I I mean, I, you know, like I said, I mean, I grew up, my dad was a director and I've worked on movies with, I've worked on huge movies from the greatest directors in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, but the bummer about, and I, I'll preface this, I'm not complaining. I'm really grateful for mm-hmm. what I've been able to do. And I've, I've been really super fortunate and it's not lost on me. Yeah. But having said that, I use my talent to help other people realize their ideas, but it comes at the expense of me realizing my own mm-hmm. and I'm kind of done with it. Like right. I've, I've, I've learned a lot and I've given a lot and I've, I've been part of some really great stuff, but I want it to be my stuff and I'm tired of being the paint. I want to be the painter. Right. You know? Well, I think one of the, I totally, under, I, I completely understand that. I mean, I'm having, it's, I, I call it my midlife renaissance, not my midlife crisis where I didn't finally step out of my box creatively until my late thirties, you know? So I, I totally understand it. But I think what you can walk away with, I see is having this, Winning a, a, this fan contest, putting this film together can be really inspirational to a lot of people that don't have the experience that 
you do, you know, that are just like, wow, I want to go do that. I you hope know? so. I, I, I know so. I, I, I guarantee you people have watched your short and are inspired to go do their own work. Absolutely. It's such a well-written story. It's, it's well. It's very gracious of you to say oh, that. Oh, I, I mean that from, from the heart. I'm not just kissing your ass. And by the way, I told Jenna this before we came in here when you were talking to my husband. You're really a great actor, too. You're really, really good in that. Oh, so, so it's not just the directing and the writing. It's a congratulations on, on, on the whole thing. And I think it's going to be very inspirational. Well, acting is probably, I mean, that's the thing that I, I'm probably, I don't know. The, I don't know what the word is, what I'm most, what I enjoy doing the most. Right. Um. And I studied forever. And yeah. I, I mean, God, when I, I've, I used to do stand up, I used to do like that crazy Elvis stuff. I do a lot of voiceover mm-hmm. stuff. I mm-hmm. do a bunch of dialects, you know, all that crap. Yeah. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, and I, the, me, like I said, that's how me and Nick originally met. We right. both studied with Arthur Mendoza, who is a mad genius. Just mm-hmm. the guy's amazing. Like, um, but I just, um, some stuff happened and it pulled me away from it for a while. So again, that's part of the reason we wanted to do this was just um, there was no grand design other than wouldn't it be fun to do a Star Wars movie together? Yeah. Wouldn't it be fun to do this? Uh-huh. And all this other stuff, like not that I'm not grateful for it. It's, I'm very grateful, uh-huh. but it's it, it's almost like icing on the cake because right. we never did it with this agenda like mm-hmm. to let's, oh, let's have all this media Well, stuff I think, and, I mean, you, you had um, commented on that before. I think that's why it came out so great is, you know, sometimes when you walk into a project and you have the budget and you have what people think are the best director and the best writer and, and they're and the best actor and they're people that have never met before and you're putting them all together. Well, you know what? Nine times out of 10, that's not going to work because yeah, there's a weird you alchemy can't, to you it. can't throw a bunch of ingredients together just because they're good separately and think they're right. going to make something right. wonderful. And so I think since it started from a place of love with your friends and, and everything, it, it, it definitely shows working. Well, thanks for, for saying that. Oh, I, absolutely. I really appreciate I'm, that. I'm, I'm so happy that you came to talk about it. Um, for, for people who haven't seen it, where can they? It's on it? starwars.com. Yeah. Um, they have a whole section for um, the Lucasfilm Fan Awards, and you just yeah. click on that, and uh, I think they're going to host it for quite some time. Great. And then where can people find you on all the social medias? Okay, I am uh, planethenderson.com mm-hmm. is a pretty comprehensive, it, and there's links to the film. And that has all film. your stuff yeah, on Yeah, that it. has everything. Yeah, yeah. That's got storyboards and artwork. And, and if someone wants to see that Spider-Man 4 stuff, they can go. Yeah, that's on there. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's links to the film, and there's stuff, um, music stuff on there and all, all kinds of crap. And then um, on Twitter, I'm at Planet Henderson. Mm-hmm. And Instagram. Oh, Instagram. At Planet yeah, you Henderson sound like also. me with my husband. Okay, right. No, you say your Instagram too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, your, and your EP. I got that next. I was oh, yeah. no, 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 no. I, that's true. Yeah, I was. I thought he was going to bring it up uh, when he was talking about music. I, I was looking at uh, some of your latest tweets, and you have an album coming out, or is it out? It just came out. It just came a week out. ago today. And it's about it's the Dark Holidays. Is the name of the band? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of music? Um, like rock and roll stuff, yeah. for lack of a better term. Um, kind of th- almost throwback, like a, what I think is cool. Um, and the response to it's been pretty good, man. Like, um, I. I, I get a weird criti- Okay, so like rock and roll people are like, well, it's too country to be rock, and then it's too rock to be country, and it's mm-hmm. too this, which I think is cool because it's kind of its own yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, it's very steeped in like, I don't know, 70s rock and 70s singer songwriter, uh-huh. like equal parts like Elvis Costello and like. That sounds um, awesome to me. That you know, sounds amazing. Beatles, Led Zeppelin, kind of, there's equal, like, yeah. I'm trying to do, it's guitar stuff because I mean, it's primarily guitar music. 
and it's 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 pretty aggressive, but but pretty kind of melodic at the same time. Right. What's the um, album called? Good Morning California. And then iTunes, go to iTunes. Yeah, or? it's on iTunes. It's on Amazon. It's on Google Play. Um, there's also links to my through Planet Henderson. Yeah. And if you go to um, thedarkholidays.bandcamp.com, if you buy it there, then there's an extra song and a bunch of pictures and like a PDF lyric book with pictures. And um, there's also a video on YouTube for one of the songs. And Cool. And if any of you guys are interested in that, just go to um, the show page, geekgirlauthority.com, and put in Jeff Henderson. And on this page, I'll have a link to, to all that stuff for you. That's cool. That's cool. I learned how to do technical stuff recently. Nice, nice. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for for doing my little show. I oh, please, that's like thanking me for giving me a present. Yeah, well, you're you're just astoundingly talented, and oh, and I this was great. Thank you, and Jenna, thank you for for sitting in. Audrey, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for not coughing during the whole show. Thank you, welcome. Jen, Jen's having some weird um, allergy issues. It's it's terrible here in the valley yeah. right now. Well, there's a huge, huge, monstrous forest fire like five I, or ten miles away from us, right? I went for um, took my dog for a walk the other night, and I was trying to get my ten thousand steps yeah, in yeah. and everything, and I didn't even think of the fire, and I have really bad asthma, and um, I was. On my inhaler the rest of the night. I couldn't sleep that night because I had so yeah, much of the really albuterol in my system. So yeah, I'm suffering too, Jenna. It really stinks, and and it just it's. I read this. Uh, yeah, I'm still talking about the weather now. I guess is what we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> it's we. Brian just read an article where everything is trapped, and your allergies are actually worse right now because of the inversion layer in uh-huh. the atmosphere yeah. and all these other layers and how they're mixing together. And it's science. <laughs> It's, it's horrible. You're scientifically obliged to be miserable. <laughs> On that note, thank you. Audrey, thank you so much. Supplicants, you may now rise. The merciful odd has chosen to spare you. Please exit the internet to your left. <laughs> <laughs>